How's it going? Welcome back to the Manufacturing Come Up. I'm Malachi Greb, your host. Today, we have a very special guest, Dave Griff. Did I get it right? You, you got the first half of it right. Uh, <laughs> typically, the I-T-H is also pronounced, but I've only been called worse things, so I, I am happy to uh, happy to join you with whatever last name we have on there. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you today. This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is a systems integrator specializing in robotic weld cell applications, and especially the design and manufacturing of the weld fixture. If you have any robotic weld cell needs, you can reach us at RFQ at EliteAutomationUSA.com. Absolutely no, thank you. I, I'm I'm happy to uh, happy to be here. Happy that we could finally uh, make this happen. I've been listening to all of the amazing stories that, uh, that you guys have put out on the manufacturing come up, and uh, very excited to hear uh, backstories that I was unfamiliar with of people that I generally know and have had conversations with. So happy uh, happy to be here and and tell everyone what my adventure to uh, to make it to the manufacturing come up sounds like. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to hear it because. Um, as some people probably already know, you guys are also making an impact in the industry. Uh, if you would kind of start off by giving us a little rundown on that. Yeah. So, uh, I guess a lot of people, uh, probably know me from, from manufacturing hub, uh, which is a show that, that I do, uh, Wednesday afternoons with my co-host, uh, Vlad Romanov. Uh, he and I kind of started to have interesting conversations. And as I was telling you before this, our goal was how do we have interesting conversations, you know, during COVID times, like we'd have at the bar after a conference or we'd have at the at breakfast or one of those things and kind of take the, those winding conversations and paths down. And when he and I started a little over two years ago, we had no idea that we'd be coming up on 90 episodes uh, at this point and, and that people would, li would listen to us. But, uh, I like to joke with our guests that all of our questions are extremely selfish, right? Because like these are burning questions of things that we want to know. So if you sell an interesting product, like I want to know about the product. If if you started in shipbuilding and somehow are now like the CEO of an automation company, I want to know how you made that transition. And if you would suggest that someone should continue down that path. Uh, one thing I will say, Malachi, is I find it really funny, right? So we ask for career advice at the end of all of our episodes. Yeah. and Almost exclusively, we hear people who are mid to high level in their career who everyone would generally consider successful saying, basically, don't do what I do, what I did, right? Like, <laughs> like, 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 go do, like, like, take this much more linear path mm. of, of go maybe study this in college or go maybe take this certificate or go maybe get a job yeah. working the line and then find opportunities to, to work up from there. Don't like bounce back and forth and do all of these crazy things. But I think that that's one of the interesting things um th that i have listened to uh both from your show and, and my show is that everyone has such a diverse background and and i yep. think that that's what makes the the automation and manufacturing communities very interesting in and of itself yeah absolutely and i think that's the thing that's like so powerful about you know individuals that are making these type of videos is like you, you're capturing that background and that you know people's different paths you can avoid the mistakes you can mm -hmm. pick up on the things that were uh you know great career choices um, you know, <laughs> we just, you know, interviewed Craig Alt Altrich and, uh, I mean, he's had like an amazing career run, like, like yeah. to me, the most ideal career run you could think of. Mm -hmm. Um, go ahead. 
No, no, I, I'm excited to I'm excited to take a listen uh, to that show. I, I did not catch the live, but I'm excited to take a listen to to how Greg uh, made it where he is. Anyone who is that successful, I'm always interested to see what they did and, and how I can potentially mirror some of their success. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, how did you get to where you're at in your career? Uh, so, so Malachi, that, that is a long twisting journey. Uh, lots of twists. Uh, so I, I will say, and I like to joke that, that manufacturing uh, and automation is, is kind of in, in the blood, right? So I had two grandfathers that were engineers, uh, worked at a variety of different plants. My, my dad has been in automation at technical sales, uh, basically what amounts to my entire life. So I did what every young boy does when looking at what his father did is I tried to do literally anything that was not manufacturing automation, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so I, I went to school, I got certified with my airframe and power plant certificate, right? I thought I was going to go work on aircraft, right? And, and it's a really good technical background. And if anyone wants to know how to like go troubleshoot things, go learn how to troubleshoot a, an aircraft and the systems that are in the aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, electrical and, and other systems. There are very few places where mistakes are worse than, than if you were to make a mistake uh what while, while looking at uh what while looking at and working on an aircraft and I, I i left i left technical school and i thought i was gonna go travel the world i thought i was gonna go find a place to pay for the rest of my schooling and kind of boiled down to i i didn't want to go work on a blimp and a blimp crew kind of traveling across the country from like sunday football game to sunday football game and big event to big event and and i didn't want to spend my entire life working in a sheet metal factory bending sheet metal uh so i i tried i tried some other stuff right i i went back and i uh, i went back and i, I finished my degree uh, mid to late 20s. And while I was doing that, I worked in a couple of different manufacturing uh, plants. I worked in a couple of different warehouses. Um, I took a job. So I, on the sales side, probably the best worst job I ever took is I took a job um, at a company that is a telemarketing company. And so sure. if you're ever afraid of someone telling you no, you just go sit in front of these phones with these auto dialers and you have someone just like say no and just slam the phone on you 350 times a night. And and after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, if you've made it, uh, it, it is significantly less painful. Uh, I, it, it is significantly less painful. You still don't like it, but but it, it, it is less painful. Um, that, that's probably the, the best worst uh, job I ever took uh, to, to help on the sales side of things. Uh, but my kind of path back into into manufacturing is is I took a job while I was finishing up my degree at a company at an OEM uh, is a German OEM that builds large gantry style machines that drill and rivet airplane fuselages together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of probably four or five people in the U.S. facility and all of the 737s uh, out in uh, Wichita all all made on those machines and so it was a lot of sales and support for those uh basically there, there are very few companies that make these machines and so you're always competing yep. against the against the same people and so it was a great learning opportunity on the sales side on the support side i got the opportunity to go work with a bunch of small machine shops saying hey these are the prints that I have in German and metric. How can we go semi-reasonably make these uh, make these over in the U.S.? And some of them, it was reasonable. There are a couple of parts that, that I still have nightmares about that I am 100% convinced that there is a 0% chance that anyone could make these to spec, right? Like the, the, the tolerance was basically plus or minus zero on, on all CDTs of the drawing callouts. And it was like, 
36 inches long or 48 inches long. And I'm like, there's no, there's no one who can reasonably make this. Um, so, so I, I had the opportunity, uh, to, to work there. It was, it was a good opportunity. I got to do a lot of project management. I got to go kind of build an aircraft plant. Uh, and, and I like to joke when, when we did it, I basically owned a conference room table. We printed out a whole bunch of engineering graph paper and then we cut out everything and we would just like move it. Right. So we'd move it from one grade to the next. It's like, okay, I can move it like this. It should in theory work in this. And of, of course we designed it for a greenfield and anyone who's ever designed a greenfield realizes that there's nearly a 0% chance you're going to build it in a greenfield. You're really going to build it in a brownfield, but you still have to prove it works in the most ideal location. So then you can go figure out how it works when there's a there's a post right in the middle of, you know, a very important pathway or, or into uh, into mid the middle of the machine. Uh, right. So kind of fast forwarding past that, I I considered kind of moving out of manufacturing and automation. I, I as many people did, uh, took an opportunity uh, working with a startup. Right. So it was a smart medical device startup. And uh, and, and I, I laugh about it. Right, Malachi. So. I thought to myself, I'm going to do something with this startup. It's it's a big data. It's an opportunity to kind of work in medical and injectables. And uh, and the thing that, well, at some point we've got to make these injectables came up and it's like, well, Dave knows how to make this. And I'm like, well, I, I guess I could make this. And so at, at some point it became, I am the person that has to now go figure out how we make this thing and how we get the prototypes and, and what we would manufacture uh, with. And anyone who hasn't worked in medical devices or with the FDA process may not realize that it's extremely expensive, right? So, so we got to the point where, hey, we've got people who are interested in the product, but to go through the FDA 510K process is reasonably about a million bucks, right? A million bucks on a good day, as long as they accepted everything kind of on the first run of your paperwork and saying, yes, this is not complete. This is a novel way to make an injectable, but it is exactly along the lines of all other style injectables. And you don't have to go through kind of a larger review process, which takes a decade and I don't know, 5 million bucks on a good day. Mm. And so, so th that was interesting. Um, I guess kind of long story short, we didn't have a million dollars and we weren't willing to give up 80 or 90% of the entire company to basically go work for someone else for the next five years to, to try to make this uh, come yeah. true. So, so I took a job uh, working in distribution. Um, I, I took a job in the mid Atlantic. I was working with the distributor manufacturers rep. I kind of helped to, to build and rebuild their, their supply chain. Um, and then with, with the same organization, I, I took a job working as an applications um, engineer. So got to get back to, to the, got to get back to the hardware. Um, it was, it was an interesting group. They do a lot of process automation, uh, which is not something that, that I had a ton of experience with. So, so very little like PLCs, but a lot of, a lot of process automation. We did a lot of steam, um, met a whole bunch of people who basically, there are basically, I don't know, like 12 people in uh, in the entire mid-Atlantic through Northeast that designed basically all of the steam systems for every major city, which oh. is how uh, lots of places uh, kind of heat everything, uh, municipal buildings, et cetera. And so that, that was an interesting opportunity. And I kind of looked at it and it was, hey, th this could be a job that I could work for the rest of my career. I could go take a territory, but I, I wanted to kind of take take that next level. And so kind of the rest of my story amounts to, hey, how can I get higher in the ecosystem and and understand what we're actually trying to do with, with manufacturing facilities? So um, I kind of left that. And I will, as a side note, say 
one of the major reasons we left that is my, my wife and I wanted to go travel. Uh, we wanted to go travel. We wanted to kind of live wherever that we wanted to live. We had spent the, the two or three years in the mid-Atlantic going and driving everywhere that we could possibly go and drive uh, and and spending every long weekend and vacation everywhere drivable uh, to the greater Baltimore area. And it's like there, there's so much of the U.S. in the world that we want to see. So kind of as the precipice of taking this next job is how can we become nomads and travel around and be wherever we want to be? And so I spent the next two and a half or three years running a systems integration company um, that so we were basically focused on the MES or the manufacturing execution system level. Uh, and so a lot of that was, was education. Right. So that a lot of that was education and sales. And it was right at this transition that I started getting into video. Um, I, I talked I talked on someone else's show a couple of weeks ago. The first video I ever made wasn't even me in it. Right. So I conned one of the sales engineers to go talk about this video. It was a. Uh, what was it? It was a, it was like um, an RTD, right? And the RTD was connected to some banner wireless radios. And so they bounced what amounted to like three feet across the table. And then from that, it went from there into like a Red Lion HMI. And someone did some custom crimson programming in there. And like it was, and there was like a, a glass of ice water. And so we dipped it in the ice water and we showed as the temperature went down on that side. And then we showed how it went down in the HMI. And then I think we had a cellular out. So, so we showed how it like texted or emailed someone. Yeah. And, and it was like a very, very super easy demo. And one of the, the amazing parts of that was that literally the oldest sales engineer that we had there, John, super knowledgeable, didn't bring the correct demo to the customer, literally told the customer while he was standing there to go to YouTube. We went to the YouTube with the single video on this entire channel and the customer goes and ends up buying this thing. And I'm like, hey, th th there might be something to this video stuff. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. So th that led me down to, to doing, I don't know, a hundred, a couple hundred uh, like talking head videos, a lot of it on manufacturing execution systems, what I would now call manufacturing intelligence, a lot of it on SCADA kind of deploying those systems from pulling sensor data in, uh, creating a SCADA, basically a visualization for a line or 10 lines across a number of different facilities, and then kind of pulling that up into the, the MES, the manufacturing execution system layer, doing uh, OEE, doing track and trace, doing kind of those in ordering to help contextualize what that data was. And around that time, I realized that we need to really help contextualize what that data is. And th that is kind of a big gap in the market. And around that time, I also realized that, that the gap in the market is, hey, we can go deliver a $5 million system, but if we don't do a good job training and listening to operators and kind of rolling that out, we could just like go out in the parking lot, light $5 million on fire and, and get virtually the same amount of things. So, yeah. so that led me to what I'm now doing, uh, Kaplan Solutions, right? So we, we are facilitators, uh, we are consultants, we're, we're practitioners, and our goal is to help uh, both service providers and end users help contextualize that data and help do projects that actually mean something, mm -hmm. uh, that actually put profit and money to the bottom line of the organization, mm -hmm. and to help kind of break through that this is a list of requirements. Now that we've come up with a list of requirements, let's go bid it out. And maybe six to 18 months later, we get something. Hopefully it's the thing that we actually thought it was going to be. I, I found that that was a that was a gap in the market. And so that has been uh, much of the last nearly three and a half years uh, of my life and our lives is how do we go help uh, customers, be it service providers and end users through this. Everything from 
point solutions to what we would call kind of an industry 4.0 or digital transformation initiative. Hmm. That was a lot to take in. It is a lot to yeah. take in. I, I, I promised. I promised it was it was a long and winding journey before yeah. I started talking. Yeah. I mean, you've definitely had a super adventurous career. I mean, you've bounced around like so many different things. Um, I think right now you guys are focused on definitely a huge gap. And like, this is probably like one of the primary reasons we don't, so we don't get involved in a ton of MES. Like if we do, it's like just because we're selling a capital project and they want MES to go with it. Um, So like with that being said, uh, one of the reasons why we don't get into it is because I don't think that that manufacturers know what to do with the data, really. Right. Absolutely. It, takes, it takes something like you guys, the services to to really get people to think about the data, what's important data, what's, you mm-hmm. know, data that's going to really drive results, meaningful results. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, so I, I would agree with that. And I've kind of moved away from delivering these gargantuan systems such as an MES for, for specifically those reasons. Like if that is the right solution, we can absolutely facilitate that uh, on, on virtually any platform. Or if there's a process historian, we can basically pull all of that information and that data from a process historian. A- at some point, the word MES is, is just, it's almost a commodity at this point because we could go deliver it over 50 or hundred different platforms. And no one really agrees just on OEE, overall equipment effectiveness. No one really agrees what that number should be or, or how we should take that number, right? And so it means a different thing, hopefully, for just every organization and every facility calculates that number the same way. But be, because th- there's so much, we'll call it nuance to what those numbers look like, and everyone wants their numbers to look better than they are, it becomes a it's this gargantuan system that without context and without people making decisions based upon it, it it turns into nothing. So I can give you an example. I I worked with an organization um, earlier this year, great organization, uh, mid-market, right? So in the the 20 to $70 million a year range that they purchased a off the shelf uh, MES solution. They installed a couple of boxes they made some choices that I would not agree with. Uh, we'll just say they made some choices that, that I wouldn't agree with. And and basically the end outcome of this report is is just like 12 pages of report that don't make sense, right? There, there's, no to, there's no context to the data. They're telling me that they're down for like 16 hours over this period of time and that they were waiting for materials for like 40 hours over the course of a day. And I'm like, this cannot, like if we just look at the math of there's only 24 hours in the day, this, this is impossible. Now, could it have hit what, what the kind of beginning requirements were? Absolutely. But just because it hit what the beginning requirements were, because there's that gap of how can we contextualize it? I mean, it, it was a project that, that didn't particularly make sense. It provided no value to that end user. The real information that they needed is what, what am I down? Why am I down? And then they needed someone to go in there and help them fix it. And so that yeah. on the operation side are, are answers that, that I've been trying to, to help organizations answer, right? And so th- that could be a, a very simple dashboard, right? So, so we, we take a dashboard and as long as we're all looking at the live data and we've got some amount of contextualization to the live data, we can make decisions uh, from that live data. Historically, and, and I'm sure Malachi, you've seen this and a bunch of the listeners ha- have heard this, 
right? It becomes a, hey, we're going to go print a report. Hopefully it was the report from this morning. Six to 20 of us are going to come into a room. We're going to discuss these pieces of paper. If there's an issue with these pieces of paper, we're all going to leave the room. We're going to go to our desks. We're going to go into other static data and information, probably in an Excel spreadsheet that is different from everyone else's Excel spreadsheet. And maybe we'll go back and forth and maybe two weeks later we've solved the problem, but we've already missed the opportunity to solve that immediate problem. So it becomes the, it, it I guess when I talk to, to end users, it becomes the, how do we put the correct information in front of people so we can make quick decisions as opposed to how do we overload and overwhelm people with information? Because without that context, without that understanding and that desire to make changes within an organization, there's no way that they're going to succeed. And uh, kind of part of the reason that we, we have gone down the process of, of starting and running Kaplan is because I've seen too many major multi-million dollar projects fail and life is too short to work on projects that are failures. Right. <laughs> what do you, what do you see on the execution side of things as far as like, are you, are you guys personally handling the implementation of, of these systems? Or are you kind of like consulting that then gets, uh, somebody else involved for the actual implementation. Absolutely. So uh, I guess I guess the answer that everyone hates and is going to call me a consultant is I'm going to say it depends, right? Um, but to, to get a little bit more specific, depending upon what it is, if, if there are a couple of, of minor changes that need to be made, we, we can potentially just go ahead and make those in-house. I work with a number of groups of really good developers, depending upon what the technology is, we can go run uh, what that project looks like through myself. Uh, so when I go when I go work with an organization, my kind of first goal is to go identify what some of the big opportunities are. And then based upon what these big opportunities are, if they're profitable, if they make sense, we can go through and figure out how to best implement them for the organization. Again, through be it through myself or my partners or through someone that they have internally. And when I look at problems that an organization has and systems integrators are going to hate me when I say this, right? It's not always a technology problem, right? Like we could have a great system, right? So, so like on, on robotic welding, we could have the robots that we need. Maybe we need to like tweak a fixture, right? Maybe we need to, to change the process of loading and unloading those. Maybe we need to do a couple of things that doesn't involve, you know, a million dollars worth of of software or code or robots or yeah. any of those things. I, I guess I have found a lot of opportunities in tweaking operations on providing slightly different visualizations to put context to the people who, who are able to understand what they need. And, and some of those are, are very low cost or some of those we can do in house in an hour or two and put tremendous value to the organization itself. So a lot of my experience in the last three years, right? So as I've moved beyond just selling the technology has been how can I holistically look at what an organization looks like and help to deliver the correct solution for them that makes sense for them because I'm not here just trying to sell a piece of software and a solution on top of that software. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Hopefully that gives everybody a little bit more, uh, a little bit better understanding of, of what you're doing and what you're offering. Absolutely. I, I hope so. And I will say that if anyone has any questions or wants to contact me, you guys can, can reach out. Happy to happy to talk more about this. I, my, my goal is not to make this a pitch uh, for sure. the middle 20 minutes as to <laughs> as, as, as as to what all that I am doing. So if you guys have more, I'd, I'd be happy to, to talk about specifics or any of those things.
Yeah. I mean, me personally, I love the topic. It's one thing that's a little bit hard for me to do because, like, I, I I have a job. I'm I'm doing this job for probably the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, whenever, you know, the manufacturing come up is really targeted towards the individuals who are, are career-seeking or mm-hmm. career-growth-seeking. Yep. And uh, so a lot of times my, my personal desires and, and conversations are not – what our audiences are. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. So uh, l- let me share a, a couple of like themes, right? So I've, I've made a couple of like fairly large jumps from where I've been. Like, so when I was working in distribution, working in distribution to, to working in what basically amounts to kind of running a systems integrator, like that, that was a fairly big jump. And uh, I've made a couple of, of big jumps on some projects that I can talk about and maybe some projects that we absolutely shouldn't talk about uh, for, for, for NDA and, and other reasons, sure. right? So when I when I look at opportunities, I have always looked at opportunities as the the opportunities that are best for myself and my career are the ones that make me nervous. Right. Mm-hmm. So you never you've never programmed a PLC until you've programmed a PLC. Right. There's there's a learning process, but you have to commit yeah. to saying, yeah, I need to do this. Right. You, you, yeah. You've never programmed a, a robot until you've programmed a robot or built a robotic cell until you've built a robotic cell. At some point you have to say yes to opportunities that make you nervous or put yourself into the position to say yes to opportunities that that make you nervous. If you don't, you're never going to find what that growth looks like. And and a lot of times it amounts to having hard conversations Mm -hmm. with your boss as to saying, Hey, I'd like to go try this other thing. Or it, uh, it amounts to, hey, maybe you've got to go make a, a move, a transition where I am with my career into another organization because I, I'm pigeonholed into the, you know, hey, I'm running the bridge board, right? But I don't want to run this. I, I want to go try a new CNC yeah. or I want to go learn how to, I want to go become a systems integrator or I want to do any of these other things. There are very few kind of major jumps and leaps in one's career that don't amount to going and taking a chance on yourself and and yeah. choosing opportunities that that go make you nervous right so when, when I was leaving uh, my my job in, in distribution right the great bunch of people I think I'd already said a group that I could have worked the rest of my life with and it, it would have been great it would have been a stable job all of that would have been really good I, I went to work for a systems integration company that had I don't know two full-time employees at that point and it's like well I don't know how we're gonna do this but it's 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 a chance that I want to take and we want to go be able to travel and live remotely. And I think I, I think my wife and I looked at each other we're like, well, we're willing to take this chance. And if it only lasts six months, then at least we've got the opportunity to go do all of these other things. And we can figure out where we want to be on a more permanent location. If we enjoy traveling, if I want to continue to work in systems integration, kind of all of these other things, we, we can choose all of these things. It was it was a pretty good two and a half, three year run uh, that we had. And and at one point, as I was looking to move into what, what Kaplan is now, I mean, one, you're worried because you're leaving a fairly stable you're leaving a, as, as stable a systems integration ever is. Right. You're leaving a fairly stable job with, with all of those opportunities and you're moving into the unknown. And you, you probably I mean, you don't know if you've got clients who are going to follow you until you ask them if they will follow you, at which point you're basically committed to going to to do whatever it is that that you're going to do. So I find kind of the the big jumps are are opportunities that you have to put yourself in the position to succeed, 
get yourself as many of those skills as you possibly can and just embrace being uncomfortable. So, so Malachi, when you started, uh, when you started the, the, your company, probably when you started the podcast, it probably was, it was uncomfortable making the jump that you had into the, well, now I'm running my own company. And then at some point you hire an employee and you're like, well, now I don't just have to make sure that I can feed my own family. It's the, now I have to make sure that I can go feed the family of my first employee and then two and then three and then 10 and, and however many you have, like those are uncomfortable feelings that you, you have to go through in order to be able yeah. to succeed. And I would imagine that most people who are, who come on this, who are very successful would, would probably say they made one or two or a hundred very uncomfortable decisions over yeah. the course of their life in, in order to get to the point of, of where they are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, my number one skill set probably is the ability to figure anything out. Mm -hmm. And that came from those pains, right? Like, I've been in system integration my entire career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started out doing like robot refurbs, and then it moved over to, uh, you know, doing more of the programming, PLC, robot, then diving into electrical engineering, diving into doing risk assessments on robotic mm -hmm. systems. And a lot of these things were an uncomfortable situation where I was like, well, there's nobody else to do this job. And, and, and some, you know, some of the moves were because I, I did them because of frustrations mm -hmm. to some degree. Uh, hey, there's nobody to do this electrical drawing. Nobody can get back to me to do these electrical drawings for a week. I'll just do them myself. Yep. Um, and so like a lot of those things I kind of just took on. And, and, you know, when we started doing risk assessments, like that stemmed from like, a customer saying, Hey, where's your risk assessment? And the company was like, uh, what risk assessment? Yep. And I was like, okay, guys, I'll do, I'll do the risk assessments, whatever. Like, mm -hmm. let's go. So I was always like seeking more opportunity and grabbing new things. Uh, and like you said, uncomfortable positions and, and, and like say for the risk assessment, super uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. That's super important. Like, you know, it's somebody's life. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. But uh, but no, I would say that, that there are lots of opportunities. And if you guys are, are looking to, to make a move either to start your own company or, or looking to, to make a move into something else, look, look at underserved markets. Right. So I would say especially in, in manufacturing, there is and probably will always be a need for more people. So I guess if you're here looking and you. This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is focusing on AMR technologies. AMRs are autonomous mobile robots used in your facility to transfer goods or products from one side of your facility to the other. This is a super powerful tool and it's a new piece of technology that us as systems integrators can utilize as a tool to leverage your company to be more advanced than the next company and be able to automate systems that at one point were not able to be automated. If you have any AMR needs, you can reach us at rfq at eliteautomationusa.com. If, if you guys are, are looking to, to get in or uh, test out manufacturing for the first time and you're not sure, there is and probably will always be a lot of opportunities to go work within a manufacturing facility itself. So mm -hmm. if, if you live close to one, I would imagine they're hiring. I would imagine they're, they're probably paying fairly well. There may or may not be hiring and retention bonuses. And you know, you're probably not going to get on first shift uh, weekdays to, to start with, but you'll get the opportunity to go try out a, a bunch of different positions. 
as an operator or maybe even maintenance or, or electrician uh, tech, if you have some of those skills. And there are certainly opportunities to go work your way up into, into other positions. Uh, so I work with a, a number of end users and, and one they're, they're always one looking for people. And the biggest complaint that I hear from operators that have been there for a while is, hey, these new kids, they don't want to learn, right? Maybe, maybe they're always in their phone, but they don't want to learn. And I teach them a bunch of things over and over again. I have found kind of over and over throughout my career that if I pay attention and I ask questions, generally people within this community are happy to help with answers and, and solutions. Sometimes you're going to find that grizzled old engineer. I'm thinking of a guy named Ron who had like a really good heart, but like I had to pull every piece of information that I mm -hmm. wanted to learn like directly out of him. But yeah. generally speaking, they are, they're happy to help as long as you show some desire and some aptitude. And as long as you kind of learn from the things that, that they're telling you. So I would say kind of manufacturing facilities in and of themselves mm -hmm are great opportunities if you want to try something, if you want to go move around within an organization. And that gives you some experience. And if you go from the, hey, I've worked for, we'll call it a year as an operator or a year in, in the, the maintenance shack, then that's going to provide an opportunity to either potentially go to a new place if you want to go learn some other things or potentially go make a move to a systems integration company if you're kind of early to mid-career and you want to learn a whole bunch of things and you want to learn what drinking from a fire hose is you can go you can go work for a small company especially like a systems integrator mm -hmm. and you probably get five years of experience for every year that you work there. Um, you're going to get involved with a bunch of different technologies. You're going to maybe for the first time in your life learn what project management is. Uh, hopefully good project management, not bad project management. Uh, you'll learn that project management is, is a make or break for yeah. will this project succeed. Yep. Uh, and th there's just there's a ton of opportunities out there. Uh, it feels like it feels like most integrators th that I talk with, most uh, OEMs, generally most people, they're, they're generally always looking for people. And if you show some of that initiative, th there is certainly opportunities to, to go have those conversations and figure out what works for you. And th the great part is that there, there are groups like Malachi who are doing kind of robotic welding, but there's also people doing PLCs. There, there are people who focus just on services for a, a couple of locations. There are groups that travel countrywide or internationally doing something much more specific. There, there is what we could say nearly unlimited growth opportunity with, with the things that you can learn if you want to learn. And if, if you don't want to learn and, and you're happy kind of working within a facility and, and having a very stable job, because again, most not all, but, but most manufacturing uh, organizations are, are fairly stable jobs. They're, they're going to continue to need nearly the same number of people to, to run the lines and make sure that the lines uh, continue to stay up today as they will 5, 10, 20 years from now, then, then learn some exceptionally valuable skills. And, and at some point very soon, you're going to be one of those older operators. And it's probably not going to take more than two or three years of really good learning because we're watching as a bunch of kind of older operators, engineers, and everyone are, are to the point that they're looking to retire. And so this just becomes a very good opportunity for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. There'll be a ton of growth in that in that space. And one of the things that you mentioned in the beginning there was knowing the knowing a direction, knowing a sector to get into. Mm -hmm. I think people choosing manufacturing 
as a whole gives you a great opportunity mm-hmm. uh, for us as a company. You know, one of the things I wish I would have done more is more research on the market fit because mm-hmm. automation is is huge and it is growing, right? But Absolutely. There's like sectors of automation that are growing quicker. There's sectors of automation that are easy to easier to like gain projects and then have mm-hmm. consistent projects after that. Um, and then so going through your career, there's, you know, jobs that especially as time goes on, whether it's five, 10, 20 years from now, right? That some of these jobs may completely shift. They might turn into something uh, just entirely different. Some of the companies might end up going out of business. That's like a small thing to keep in mind, right? Yeah. And and it may be that, you know, it's this company doing this one process and some other company that's doing the exact same thing decides to do the process some other way. Mm-hmm. And it's maximize it maximizes their profitability and, uh, you know, ability to take over complete market share. And, uh, you know, that's something to keep in mind. And also, if you can see that, if you're like constantly just like looking a little bit mm-hmm. and being aware, like through like tools like LinkedIn, that you may see something and say, hey. I may want to jump on that train because it looks like it's doing something. And from there, you may have like a, an unlimited amount of, of success. Mm-hmm. And also some of those things could be ri- more risky. Let's say for instance, like think about if you worked for a Tesla a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you know, if yeah. you worked for like Rivian or something like that, mm-hmm. like that's a cool, pretty cool, like rewarding career, but also you never know re- realistically where you're going to go, you know? Um yeah. So, so the, the group, the group I was, I was working with, uh, had a bunch of people out at Tesla, uh, right before Elon went there and decided he didn't want any contractors left in his building and just threw everyone out. So I don't know, five, six years ago, uh, basically everyone west of the Mississippi who wanted to go work at the Gigafactory, uh, got to go out to beautiful Sparks, Nevada, outside of Reno, uh, significantly increase all of housing prices out there. But they also got the ability to go work at, at the Gigafactory, which is really cool. If you guys are ever out in the middle of nowhere um, and you can get a tour, it's definitely worth the tour. When, when I was out there, they were actively blowing out three of the four walls uh, uh-huh. on a basically weekly basis just in their, their process to ever expand. Um, I loved my tour. So I had one of the, the senior engineers for one of the areas. He was giving us the, the tour around. Uh, it was, I think it was the, the second floor and they were in the process of uh, kind of adding and changing things around and they literally walled off a stairwell. And, and apparently it was a very regular thing there that they would just wall off stairwells. And if you weren't in that part of the, the half a million square feet at that point in time, uh, that week, you may have to go find another way to to get where you're going because you can't get there from here. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was it was an interesting period of time. Uh, and, and I would say that that flexibility is is key. I know a lot of people who focus on just kind of one sector. So, so you, you can kind of focus on one solution, but you can also focus on one sector. So I know a lot of people who who are only oil and gas people or a lot of people mm-hmm. who yeah. are only food and beverage people. Okay. And th- there's the benefits of your kind of that that expert uh, potentially on that process. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, the potential downsides of, hey, when oil and gas is busted out, knock on wood that that doesn't happen. But, but when oil and gas is, is kind of low everyone gets sent home and, or, or, uh, and then I would say mining is also kind of another one of those sectors that's very up, that is very up and down. It's the only 
place that I've ever seen someone commission a brand new control system. Uh, well, th they put the new control system and they didn't commission it. They, they shut it down. And then 20 years, they came back to start up the plant because whatever the mineral was, what uh, was to the point that we could prop, we could make money doing this again. And yeah. they ripped out the, the brand new, never used control system that was 20 years old and had to go put a brand new, brand new control system in uh -huh. because it had one never been commissioned and two new, no one knew how to use it. And three, it was legacy at that point in time with, with zero hours of run on it. Mm. Yeah. You, you said that. And I want to bring one up real quick. I, I wonder how many people are stuck with mass machines that they're never going to use now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in reality, like, you know, uh, I've never been a huge like, um, oh, what do you call it? Like trend jumper. Mm -hmm. And like definitely one of the things I see, I've seen like with that type of thing is there's a bunch of people diving into this. They mm -hmm. see a bunch of money to be made in it. And if, if, if you notice a lot of things like that, they don't last long in time before it kind of gets forgotten about. Absolutely. Um, and and, and kind of to, to the trends point, I, I will say that that out in the kind of internet space, we, we talk about a, a lot of things, a lot of awesome technology. Uh, be prepared to go walk into a facility that is 20 iterations of that technology behind, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you go walk into a facility and you might want to go talk about Industry 4.0 or digital transformation or the newest version of whatever robot or, or software solution. And they're yeah. like eight versions behind. And a lot of the things that we, we talk about in the Internet space about Industry 4.0 and digital transformation, yeah. all that, like that exists out here in the Internet space. That doesn't necessarily exist in facilities. Yeah. Um, I know some of the, the most forward looking facilities that, that I work with still don't particularly know what a digital transformation or an industry 4.0 means to them right mm -hmm. a, a lot of them uh, so I, I was I was working with uh, with one of my facilities uh, a couple of months ago and uh, they were struggling to kind of contextualize a bunch of, of data and the answer that they were looking for was was literally power bi I'm like Guys, the, the thing that you're looking for is we just pull a couple of databases together and you can visualize it with, with Power BI. We don't have to worry about all of these other kind of much more expensive solutions. You probably already own the licenses with your Microsoft 365 or your Office 365. Like what you really need is like 20 hours of me explaining what Power BI is and, uh, and how it works and then just letting you guys go at it and connect a couple yeah. of databases. And, and th that is the answer to, to so many questions as opposed to kind of whatever the whatever the latest trend is. It's awesome to, mm -hmm. to continue to look at what those trends look like because some of them will be the future, but you just have to understand that there's a different perception versus reality yeah. in many of these places. And if you're going to go have conversations with end users, their reality is very different than what we talk about much of the time online. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is also like a big reason why you don't see me like talk about like IOT and mm -hmm. like, you know, industry 4.0 is because in the real world, I see too much, too many manufacturers and customers that are just still not there yet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in my mind that there is many more business points that they can prove on manufacturing points. I'll just say business, right? Cause yeah. really a manufacturer is still a business either way you look at it, but like on the manufacturing level, there's still so many improvements that you can do. Like, like let's say for instance, like this, if you have 50 operations mm -hmm. that could easily be 
let's say let's just go with like robotic palletizing right yep and so that's 50 that's 50 humans that's you know uh three shifts seven days a week and and, and to say that like collecting data is is more important than than consolidating those positions mm-hmm. uh, especially if they're dealing with labor shortages which most yeah. people are dealing with um you know for the, a business standpoint i think it makes more sense to go ahead and throw throw in a uh a, a robotic palletizing mm-hmm. and and kind of another side tangent but uh touches on the point that you talked about our a lot of our customers are actually still very palatable to use robots mm-hmm. that actually like peaks up their ears and they're actually pretty excited to hear like oh used robot we didn't really think about that or you know i mean because and you know, i've worked around robots long enough that mm-hmm. it's five years has 10 15 20 more years in it still depending mm-hmm. on what type of life it's had yep. uh, and then you in it and then you put it into a a life where we you know like we're looking at one application right now that's uh a two second cycle or i mean sorry two minute cycle time oh you're right and like you have a two minute yeah. cycle time like th- yeah. that robot's gonna last forever it's you know um mm-hmm. and, and so like like things like that are still uh ways for like manufacturers to be very strategic and and think if that makes sense right if you have a two second cycle time yeah you probably want to use a new robot right? yep. it's probably not gonna last long anyway no. uh, <laughs> but um yeah, these 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 operations where there are slower cycle time, tolerances aren't as important. Like it still makes good business decision to to make investments that are not uh, super technological. Mm-hmm. One of the things. I, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to absolutely agree that there are there are lots of opportunities to make to make the correct business investments. And when, when we talk about kind of these services and these solutions, we have to realize that the people buying them probably aren't us. They're probably not even the engineering managers, right? So we probably need to get plant manager um, at least sign off on kind of these large uh, opportunities. And if you go try to sell them a a million dollars or or half a million dollars worth of palletizers, they're going to be like, okay, but why? Like, I'm not going to go write you a blank check for this. Why, Why would I go put in a new palletizer? Like what's wrong with my current palletizer? What's wrong? Can I fix it? What's it going to cost? And then what is what is kind of the return on investment of what? Yeah. What's the return on investment of this going to be like? These are the conversations that we are having every day at the plant level facilities, because as cool as some of these technologies are, if there's not return on investment, then we're typically they're typically not making it past proof of concept phase if it's small enough to be able to run a proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unless you're unless this is like a, just a company that's just like trying to jump on with like the technological trend of something. Yep. Uh, which I you know I think it happens. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say so I find a lot of newer, younger, smaller companies jumping on the, those technological trends, right? So yeah. there has kind of been an influx of what I'll just call new money um, mm-hmm. into manufacturing. Uh, I've seen a lot of co-packers especially do it, right? Like, can we co-pack better, cheaper than our competitors with newer technology, with better technology, mm-hmm. maybe with less manual tasks uh, along the way? So I've certainly seen uh, co-packers kind of very focused and very interested on on the technology. Sometimes it's technology for technology's sake uh, with some of these organizations. Um, but 
with much of it, like if you've got the capital to spend, you only have to hit gold like one in 10 times, one in 20 times for it to more than make sense on a particular yeah. piece of technology. And so those especially are groups that, that I see more interested in kind of as a service. So a lot of the IIoT or the Industry 4.0, we see people kind of selling like software as a service. I've had a couple of conversations about robots as a service or machines as a service, mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting. I, five years ago, was listening to plant managers argue about how they'd never put anything in the cloud because they don't believe in the cloud. So mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we've got a ways to go to get to as a service, yeah. but I, I think it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I think that technology and kind of everything that we're talking about will catch up with manufacturing, but I just remind people who have not lived this life that, that manufacturing and kind of what we do is like 20 years behind yeah, everything. everything. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I had I had a client, right? So I think that they started in 1954. Um, his joke was like, once you pass through the gates, everything in here is 1954, right? So, so they, had, they had all the coveralls. They had all those generally good people. Uh, so some really strange viewpoints on things. Very interested in technology, ironically. But basically, once you enter the gates, it was 1954 on the inside. And the, the rest of the world was, was, at, was 2020 timelines. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, what you, you touched on, uh, you know, machines as a service, and I think that you're right. That's definitely one thing that's too new. Uh, I, I think there's definitely a use case for it, and I think there, there is going to be some major success in it. I think it'll just be the adoption. It's going to take yeah. time for some adoption of that. Uh, one thing that we're actually re uh, launching here soon, we're really we're just working on building up the model and how we want to yeah. package it exactly, mm -hmm. but it's going to be 24-7 uh, support. As, okay. as like a, a subscription service and mm -hmm. there's some level of that out there already but i think we're going to do it in like a pretty impactful way that's um, good I, I i have i've dealt especially when you deal with like fortune 100 fortune 5000 companies they always want that kind of high level of of sla agreements mm -hmm. and especially for smaller companies those are always difficult to have right like if you need you know, 95% uptime and you got to get back to them within an hour and then you've got to get on site within like six hours or a day that that can become very difficult for, for smaller organizations to do. So it'll be interesting to see what, what you guys roll out. And if it's if it's that impactful, I think it'll only be better for all of our end users because it'll give them the opportunity to stay up and running. And if they can stay up and running, then they should have more money to pay us next year uh, for more awesome robots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's been something we've been actually doing our, ourselves on our mm -hmm. own internal systems, but this is something like we're looking to deploy across like existing pieces of equipment and even like potentially legacy equipment. And there's definitely going to be some learning that, that goes into it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in reality, like we're not necessarily, I guess, how do I put it? Like it's not that we're not necessarily looking to make money off of it because we will, we will make money and it will be very successful financially as well. But the, the value added back, I think, will be just as much valuable, just as much uh, as valuable. Uh, you know, am I at least I'm not aware of a ton of different companies that offer like 24 seven support where you can mm -hmm. call them on the phone and say, hey, you know, I have machine number 2022 07 26 down. Mm -hmm. I need somebody to log into it right now and and, and troubleshoot it. Um, but yeah, I I. 
I don't know uh, of anyone who does it at size, right? There are probably are people who, who do it. There are probably people who do it well. I know a couple of groups who service a couple of very specific end users that if they have that issue, they can absolutely go provide that service. But that's just because there are three or four people who never sleep, and that is where they make all their money from. Um, yeah. Kind of at scale in mass, it, it is not something that I am familiar with. It, it's something that I've had conversations around before, and it is, it's a big lift. Anytime you go to look to do something like that, it's, it's just always a big lift. And so it was not something that uh, that I have gone down in, in the past, mostly because I don't want to manage 20 people whose sole jobs are potentially being able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, like the, the model that we're that we're looking to put out is like it's going to be a kind of at mass only model. Like this model will only work as a business case mm-hmm. if we can get, you know, 100 contracts to do it. Yep. Right. Like it's going to take because. Okay, I can't really get into all of it right now, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's okay. It, it, it's, it's your live stream, guy. We do not have to potentially. Long. I will tell you that I've had lots of people on my show talk about things that they weren't supposed to talk about <laughs> um, on, on live shows. So I will not go push you into going to talk about uh, what, what you're talking about on the live. And you can go ahead and edit this out of the podcast uh, if that's what you guys want until until it officially launches. <laughs> I mean, it's okay that it's mentioned. We just can't get too deep into the details wait i think i think i really do think in reality we will have to keep our actual internal workings pretty secretive yeah i think that i think it's gonna be that impactful um but yeah i think on surface level it'll look something like a maybe some normal it'll kind of look like a, a regular package to some degree until we take you behind the scenes and show show like in the actual sales call what it looks like that's what mm-hmm. people will see uh we have a robert here he's asking uh how can robotics be used in contract manufacturing? Oh, interesting. So, Robert, I will throw a couple of things that I have seen robotics being used in, and then I'll let Malachi, because he is the robotics expert, uh, <laughs> talk about it. So, so when I look in contract manufacturing, I specifically look at palletizing, depalletizing as, as big opportunities. Uh, I've had conversations with a couple of groups who are looking at as a service, and I think that that is the biggest opportunity. Uh, so I worked with a contract manufacturer, as, as I mentioned earlier, earlier this year. And well, they had many problems, but one of their big problems is that their palletizer was basically just junk, right? So uh, we had had conversations around, can we go remove this palletizing cell, put in a robotic palletizer? Cause it was a very, it was a very long site. Like it was two to, I think it was five minutes. What oh, was wow. basically the cycle time. Yes. Um. So, so that was an opportunity. Um. And then they had a, a, um, what was uh, it was a variety pack. So we were talking about putting a variety pack, which basically meant that they would have uh, a bunch of beers or seltzers that that, that they were packaging. Uh, they would come into a bunch of stations in front of the variety pack line and they would go pick uh, either the bottle or the I'm sorry, the cans themselves or pallet or cases of those cans. And then it would go and it would run. And then the variety pack was basically robotic arms that would go pick them and put them in the specific package and the specific location of the package. And that that's what I see a lot of kind of the low hanging fruit is palletizers, depalletizers, and kind of to that point, a lot of what I see of as a service, as a potential, because then if there's an issue with the palletizer, depalletizer, you could call someone like this guy and say, hey, Malachi, you promised that my palletizer or depalletizer would be up and running. It's not up and running. How can you go help us get up and running? Because our line's down. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For, for, you know, it depends on how long that, you know, the contract is, but I think robotics can kind of have the best use case. And this is a big reason why we do so much robotics versus, uh, uh, specialized machining mm-hmm. specialized machines uh is because the the ro- robotic systems can be redeployed easily right they're a six axis arm you can you can take it and move it around and the other thing with that is if it's already in mind in the engineering phase you can do a lot of things to make the system um more adaptable to being able to be used in different operations, right? If you know that this machine's only going to have a two-year runtime and it's going to need to be moved to another uh, location or do a different task, then with that being said, you can uh, engineer in some things that that may make it be easier to be moved around. And let's go with like a simple or, or, or a good example of like CNC machining, right? Say, for instance, if you have a robot and you want to move it around to different CNC machines, one of the things that we can do is like engineer like a locking system so that way you you can move a robot around on carts, but mm-hmm. it has uh, you know locators that will locate that whole cart in a position and is a high tolerance. So that way, uh, no matter what, what machine you move this around to, the robot's able to adjust its program and mm-hmm. uh, automatically uh, you know be able to run the, whatever the new operation is. And so there's things like that that you can keep in mind. Um, you know, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, I've seen on the CNC side, uh, I've seen and helped kind of de- deploy actually like gantry style robots. So these were for like very high, uh, high rate, high use uh, CNC machines. And so, and, and it's, I think it was a combination of the use as well as the, of the payload necessity that they're moving big pieces of aluminum yeah. um, in, in and out of these CNCs. And so it was gantry robots. And then depending upon kind of the, the CNC machines, their locations and the gantry robot, I think it was fairly regular to put like four or to, to have one gantry robot be able to have four or six CNCs within kind of the larger cell. So it could move back and forth and capture all six of those, thus alleviating, I don't know, two, three, six humans having to go all this, you know, 50 or hundred pound block of aluminum in and out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, definitely just having systems that are, are the most adaptable and can potentially cover the most amount of jobs uh, within your facility is, is very, very advantageous. Also too, like what, what type of, what type of contracts do you have? This is another big thing. Like we first thing we look at when it comes to automating anything is like, what are the parts and what are the part variants that you want to run? And that's going to dictate a lot as far as uh, Mm -hmm. the complexity of the system. Right. And is it deployable to other systems? You know, if all your parts are, you know, you're running a hundred different contracts and and every one of those contracts is completely different and you can't Mm -hmm. handle a part. It can't be picked up by vacuum. Now, now you've kind of have a system that, is not very redeployable whereas like sure we have 100 parts but they can all be picked up with vacuum mm-hmm. okay cool now now we have something we can work with and uh the system can be fairly redeployable uh in different different operations awesome i think we i think we touched on robert's question i think we got him yes <laughs> yes robert and i will say that if you want to talk to uh, to someone else about robots uh, you know the person to to reach out to <laughs> on this conversation and it's not me <laughs> well thank you um yeah so 
we've definitely been doing some side tangents. So let's let let uh, if you got a couple more minutes, let's let's kind of just touch on your career a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I'm actually very uh, curious to hear about the uh, the calling thing that you jumped into for a minute. Okay, absolutely. So so what was it? So I was I was finishing college, and I was looking for a job that was relatively close by. And, uh, it was, it was a company that I think they're still around. They're called dial America. Right. So I, so I guess I should say that I, I grew up in, in Western New York outside of Buffalo. There are a lot of really good telecommunication lines and connections. And so historically there have been a lot of call centers. Um, uh, it was not something that I particularly wanted to do, but I'll be honest with you guys and tell you that the pay was pretty good. And if you got people who were interested and willing and were good talking to people on the phone, you, you can make some, uh, some okay money. And generally speaking at that point in time, they were willing to let me work a super flexible schedule so I could have weekends off. Um, sometimes I would go take three day weekends and, and go do something with my now wife. And so that, that for me was more important than, uh, than just about anything. So, uh, ba- basically it was, it was an automated dialer. Uh, I I'd go in, uh, I'd work one of three or four programs that they generally have. And, it would automatically dial uh, someone's home or, or cell phone. And sometimes people would pick up and when people would pick up, you know, there was a script um, and then you, you could kind of ad lib the script and, and go, basically you tell them where you're calling from and then say, basically, Hey, this is the offer. Uh, sometimes I didn't like, we did everything for, from magazines um, to, there were some credit cards that kind of cycled in and out. Uh, there, there was one, uh, there was one thing that we offered, which was basically like home insurance, additional riders. So for like the electrical power systems or the clean water in or the wastewater out, like th- those pipes and lines, but you can't call it insurance because to call it insurance, you have to be a licensed insurance broker mm-hmm. of which I can promise you I'm actually not, I'm absolutely not. But the easiest way to describe it is insurance, like an additional insurance uh, rider. And so you'd go call homeowners and say, hey, are you interested in this for, I don't even remember what, the, I think the cost was fairly reasonable, right? So so you you would talk to kind of scale at mass, things make sense, right? So for like sure. two, three, five bucks a month, you could go protect yourself from tens of thousands of dollars yeah. of, of theoretical <laughs> liabilities. This is- and Yeah. This is how our 24-7 support's gonna work. Is it? <laughs> you can go protect yourself from lots of liabilities. Uh, but, but no, but but no. So we'd have an automated dialer and, and you'd go and you'd sit and, and you'd work the program. And sometimes you had great conversations that went. I've had conversations that went, you know, more than an hour with people, and they'd say yeah. yes, and that they're all very happy. And you move forward from it. And uh I, I had there were there were a bunch of good nights, right? So so I mentioned like working. Uh, on nights that there were like 350, I had like one really bad week uh, that I, I think I worked four or five days, uh, four or five like afternoons or maybe one evening. And I think I had like two yeses over the course of like 1500 uh, phone calls that, that I could actually like go through and designate. So if it, if it rings through and you get nothing, it, it doesn't, it, there, there's no, it's basically a callback disposition. But if you, or if someone like picks up and hangs up, depending upon what it is, that might just be a a, a a callback disposition. But of the disposed ones of people who said, no, I'm not interested, or yes, I am interested, of again, there were almost only no no's for, for one of those weeks. Um there were there was one real bad week where you just kind of got numb to uh, numb to people saying no. I, I would say so. Um, as I kind of mentioned, 
uh, I've done a lot of work on, you know, fairly large scale projects and, and, you know, you do a lot of proposals, right? So if, if you, mm-hmm. you work in sales or you work in leadership or you run your own company, you're going to do a lot of proposals and you're going to follow up on a lot of proposals. And if you don't follow up on proposals, you're probably never going to uh, ever get someone to, uh, to buy anything from you. But, yeah. but it was, it was good to kind of get numb to that. Right. So th- there are mm-hmm. still days where it's frustrating that, you know, you spent time doing this and the person's like, yeah, I want this right now. And so you turn around a proposal and you, you block out and you mm-hmm. do other things and they just don't get back to you. And so you got to like, go get, get at them mm-hmm. a couple of times. And you guys will be surprised how many people say yes after like the fifth or seventh time that you go follow up, it's like, yeah. Hey guys, like, are you interested in doing this? You know, I have time on X period of time or I have Y robot, or I have one of these things that's ready. Are you ready to do this? And you just have to find that, that time period in which people yeah. are, are ready to go ahead and, and say, yes. So, um, working the phones was not my favorite job. Um, it was, there, there were times where it was really good. There were times when it was super frustrating, but if you guys want to go learn how to sell things or, or go learn to accept an awful lot of rejection, it, it, it's a really good opportunity, uh, to, to maybe make some extra money and to, to learn to get over the fear of someone picking up or not picking up the phone or saying no. Yeah. I mean, th- this is the exact reason why I, why I took you back to the, this yep. calling thing, uh, even though it's outside of our industry, mm-hmm. I've, I've been putting in some serious debate to go like work third shift at a call center yeah, and, and to do like you're saying, like get these reps in or, or like go like do like some part-time thing to like uh, do like gym membership sales mm-hmm. or something like that. Because yeah. like the, the one, I want to be an extremely good salesperson mm-hmm. because I think I have a, you know, in my mind, I think I have a lot of good things to offer mm-hmm. and I'm not the best at selling them. And I kind of just, I, I honestly, I feel like I put my foot in my mouth on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, no, you guys don't really want this. This don't make sense, right? <laughs> well, so, so, so I guess let, let me pause. Like, th- there, is, there's a difference between I've got to go sell this credit card or this gym membership versus mm-hmm. I need to do the right thing for my customer. And, yeah. and so, so I, let me just slightly expand upon that, right? So, the right thing for your customer might not be a robot, might not be the technology mm-hmm. solution. Um, that, that's why, again, I made kind of a shift away from selling technology solutions first in my career is because I wanted to be able to provide the right solution without worried about, Hey, I got to go sell this thing or I'm not getting paid and my guys won't have any more work to do. So, so, so one, I would say building that relationship and telling people, Hey, I don't think the thing that I'm offering is the right thing for you. Let Mm -hmm. me go help you find the right thing for you is always in this industry going to be more beneficial in the end than Definitely. selling them something th- that they don't need. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so one of the, one of the interesting things that I learned or perhaps started learning while I was working uh, the call center, what uh, was the, the value of a script, right? Um, and so I, uh, basically when we had it, it was either a digital script like all the way through, hey, Malachi, my name is Dave. How are you doing? You know, and, and like maybe it gives you an opportunity to kind of play upon, you know, weather or other things, do a little bit of small talk but before you jumped in. Yeah, but, sure. But, and basically the value of the script is not, you know, the best, like the best salesperson in the world could go sell ice to an Eskimo in the middle right. of winter and they could keep them on the phone until they said yes. Like, the, the value of a script is not necessarily for that person. The value of the script is for the other nearly 100% of humans yeah. 
who need some sort of form, right? So yep. if if I'm calling and saying, you know, hey, Malachi, I want to talk to you about, I, I don't know, an operational thing uh, for your facility, like maybe ask you if you've got a couple of problems, kind of go down that point, having a, having a script, kind of having that format, super valuable because it's going to allow you to continue to do it over and over again. And maybe yeah. you get, a, maybe you get a whole bunch of no's, maybe you run into the same issue and, and you change it up, but it at least allows you to have that same repeatable conversation over and over and over again. Yep. And once you're having that conversation over and over again, it becomes more second nature and yep. you, you put in the time to give it forethought as opposed to like, like you saying yes. And then I'm like, well, crap, no one has ever said yes before. I don't like, like, like am uh, I supposed yeah. to, am I supposed to send you something <laughs> like, 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 like no, no, yeah. Yeah. Like I've never got someone to say yes before. Yes. I'm going to, uh, and then, then go, go screaming uh, for someone saying, Hey, I finally sold this operational thing or I finally sold a robot. Right. So, <laughs> so, so one, one of the major things that I learned was kind of the value of the script and the value of the script is, is to have that consistency. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like it's the you know you like you said you got you got second nature with the script because you're doing it all day every day. Now yeah. it gives your 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 mind the ability to have the capacity to say, okay, how can I do this different? How can I change up my words a little bit at this last part? Yep. Um, and 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 so I want to touch on the career part of this again. That like a weird job like this mm -hmm. that may be completely outside of what you're wanting to do. Like let's say first you 101 percent think you want to do like manufacturing sales, automation mm -hmm. sales, robotic sales, whatever, right? You're in, mm -hmm. in this industry in sales. It might be highly, highly worth it to go do that that call center. I mean, almost as worth it as going to college. Like go to that call yeah. center for three months, you know, six yeah. months, whatever, right? And get those reps in. Because like me as a CEO of the company, I'm telling you that like I'm contemplating, I probably won't do it, but I'm, it's like mm -hmm. it's going around in my head that like, at at ten at ten sales calls a week that I that I currently do whatever the number mm -hmm. is right yeah. somewhere around there, um, at ten sales calls a week, uh, that's not enough reps for me to like really change my wording. You know, I, I need to be on a call eight hours a day every day. Like, hey, mm -hmm. this, hey, that, hey, this. What I say that was mm -hmm. stupid in, in this call. What I say that was yeah. dumb in that call. You know, because mm -hmm. going into the thing, I I kind of said it wrong a second ago whatever I was saying, like I put my foot in my mouth. Uh, what I mean, like, but I mean that, but like what I really mean it on is like services where I know I'm really providing a good value. And I know that like, they're not making a good decision by not buying this thing, yep. but I still don't push it like that. You know, I still don't sell it in that way, even though I know it's very good for them and their position. Absolutely. And I would say that as the industry kind of grows, it's the conversation of like, like what is your sales process and, and how do you present yourself? So I, I very rarely will go kind of into the commodities, right? So I, my goal is not to go go line up against four other people and say, oh, Dave is the cheapest. I'm going to go with Dave, right? So, so yep. that, that that is not the value that, that I feel like I bring. I'm not going to go, you know, dollar to dollar with this because the things that I do, the capabilities that I have are very different from, you know, the next 20 people mm -hmm. behind me. So 
I, I think that it, it's the sales process and that if you can find the, the good, if you can find the best opportunities, get there early, help create what the requirements look like, show value, show the end user what value right. you bring, then it becomes, hey, this is the value that I can bring to your organization. I've shown you through this process. We need to continue to go through this process together so that I can continue to bring this value all the way through implementation. Yeah. And so, so I find that that's the important thing. Uh, and there are some groups, some people uh, in automation, in manufacturing, who are kind of trying to drive it all the commodities, right? They're, they're trying right. to drive the dollar to, hey, this is the cheapest that I can do this and still make money. And maybe, yeah. maybe if I do a whole bunch of bad deals, I can drive some competitors out of business and maybe I can make a little bit more money um, in the, the medium to, to long term before other competitors come in, right? So like, like that, that is not my goal. That, that is, right. I've worked, I've worked with a bunch of, of integrators and other things like that on what, what the value prop is. And, uh-huh. and basically really early on, it becomes the, if your goal is to bring value to the end user, let's go find end users. Let's go find projects that that is the correct the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have won projects where I've been 20, 30, 40% higher than other people because they know the sort of work that I do. And because yeah. they know the sort of work that I do they're happy to go spend the money because they know that I'm going to make something that actually works as opposed to looking at some junky requirement that they've given me and being like, well, yes, I can deploy this, but nowhere on here does it say that it has to start up, right? Like nowhere on this does it say any of these things. And so I'm going to follow the the letter of the requirements as opposed Mm to, you know, what the actual goal of the project is. So I would say it's very much kind of looking at what that is. And again, manufacturing, and I'm sure you know Malachi, but but for everyone listening, it's very much a relationships business. Uh, You'll, I mean, Malachi said he's probably going to be doing this the rest of his life. I I have also said a number of times that I've got a good probably 20, 30 plus years uh, to go with me before I'm done with this. But but, but I I am basically pot committed at at this point that barring some absolutely insane opportunity or something else that like this, this is the group that I want to continue to work on. And you'll notice, especially as you spend more time in industries that like the faces stay the same, the business cards change, right? So we might be working for different people five years from now and sales guys and other technical folks will absolutely be working for different people, but the same people show up at the same conferences every year because this is the industry that we've committed to. And while this year might not be the opportunity next year or five years from now, can absolutely be the opportunity. There are groups that it takes three or four years sometimes to find the right opportunity to go do the project that you want to do. But when they've got the opportunity to go do the project, they're the you're the person they're going to call because of the the work and the help and the fact that they continue to see you uh, over and over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we just mentioned before, like we're kind of just now starting to find our space and where we where we sit in the market. Um, and another another thing that you that you mentioned that brought up something in my mind that was uh, it, this is more of a coaching thing and, and a training thing, but uh, basically something along the lines of if you are one to two levels ahead of somebody, you're like the perfect person to be coaching that person, right? And so that can be applied for like business as well. Mm-hmm. That somebody that's one or two levels above you, they're they're still close enough to the to the same pains that you're dealing with. Uh, but they also have learned a, a little bit an, enough more that, you know, they can provide those values back to you. So 
like like let's say for instance somebody who's five years ahead in their career in comparison mm-hmm. to where I'm at or or where anybody's at, right? That's that's a very good person to learn from. They're not too far away. We're like they don't even barely remember what they did ten years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a a really key point. And and going like touching on that again is like that is potentially who like our ideal customer is or we are their ideal vendor, right? Mm-hmm. We're willing to work with that smaller company. They're needing somebody that really needs to help them because they have no clue what they're doing Yep. Uh, when it comes to like automating something. And, you know, maybe they've heard of it. They bought some machinery and equipment, but none of it's been like automation equipment. Mm-hmm. It's just yep. a machine to do the process. Um, so I think, yeah, it's definitely valuable to think of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I I agree kind of on the coaching um, mentor side. I think that those are very important. Um, If you've got people within your organization, if you've got people within kind of your greater area or group, um, there are a bunch of different people that you can ask. I would imagine most people, uh, I, I would hope in a larger organization, there are kind of mentors or coaches kind of built in. But if, if you're looking for someone maybe informally looking to have conversations and bounce ideas off of each other, th- there are a ton of opportunities to do that. I would imagine a lot of people are always interested to kind of go have those conversations. Um, if you are looking to start a business, uh, the, the Small Business Administration and an organization called SCORE offer free mentoring from people who have generally been there before. Um, I've had a bunch of conversations with with those groups and those people, and it, it's super valuable. Um, my wife sometimes calls it business therapy, right? It's like mm-hmm. sometimes I just need to talk to someone who like doesn't intimately know me to make sure I'm not like absolutely insane. Yeah, and so 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 it, it's nice to to have that reality check uh, mm-hmm. from from different groups and different people. What is this again? Uh, so, so score. Um, okay. I, I can send you a link after this. Uh, sure. it, it's a group that that does uh, kind of small business. It's a group that that is part of or tangential to the Small Business Administration, the SBA. Hmm. They do they do a bunch of webinars on like what is this different thing within finance and, and how should you set up a, a business and entity and organization. And as part of that, they've got free mentors, um, generally yeah. people. Who, Generally, people who have been through the organization before, generally people who are successful business folks who are either retired or are looking at ways to go give back to other people who are going down a similar path uh, to, to what they have done. And uh, if you go on, it's score.org is, is the website you guys can go on. You guys can find people within specific industries, within specific areas, and that there are a bunch of different opportunities. Um, as I've had these con- conversations, kind of the number of requests uh, of mentees for mentors uh, exploded during kind of the, the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know where they're at or, or, or how many people have the ability to take on more mentees, but like that, that's a very good opportunity especially if you're going to look to, to start your business, uh, to start a business, that, that, that's a great opportunity. Um, and then beyond that, look, look internally within kind of the organization and the company that you work for. Uh, there are a bunch of other great services like the International Society of Automation, ISA. They've got both digital stuff and depending upon what region you are, either really strong or less than strong kind of regional groups that, that go get together. Um, and there, there are lots of very knowledgeable people. Um, as, as I kind of mentioned earlier when I was joking about my, my Ron story of like a really smart guy, generally happy to go provide and, and give sure. knowledge, although sometimes you got to pull it from them. I have found maybe not exclusively, but almost exclusively older people within our organization 
are looking for ways to coach and mentor and teach, uh, coach and mentor and teach because they know that they've got 20, 30, 45 years of knowledge and they're the person who does it all time, all the time, whether within an organization or outside of an organization in an area. And they are looking for some way to kind of pass their knowledge, potentially pass some of the business that they do, some of those life lessons onto someone who is interested and willing to listen about it. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's super important to keep in mind. I like I tell people that, you know, I'm kind of uh, an introverted individual. So, you know, me just like messaging people and especially asking for things. I hate asking for things. I don't know why, but you know, I always, I, so it's like I'm introverted and like, there's also some weird part of me that's like, I hate to ask for things if I don't have a thing to give you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just like part of my nature. I don't know if I'll grow out of it. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I hope I do, but. Well, I, I think that there's the good side as you're not, you know, one of those thousand people sending only spam messages on LinkedIn or only spam emails, right? Like it's it's absolutely appropriate to be to go ask someone for something or to go ask someone their opinion of something. But if you're the person who like it looks like you're trying to mine my data in order to like go put me on an email list that I don't want to be on, or it looks like this has got to be a scam, or you're like yeah. the seven thousandth graphic designer who's tried to message me so far today right it, it, it's like it's like all of these things like go be unique in in what you're doing and what you're asking if you're just kind of go blasting a, a mass email or a, a mass message on linkedin or one of these other platforms then then you are going to just kind of go get filtered out and no one is going to, to go pay attention mm. to, to you and what you're doing and what you're offering yeah i'm glad that you mentioned that too because like it's so one thing is the business <clears throat> You know, I've been pushing really hard to ramp up content. Mm-hmm. And now that we've got content ramped up, now I'm debating on pulling back. <laughs> I, I think that that's, I think that, that that's important, right? Like I, I so I, I do, I do a weekly show. I, uh, I get a podcast that comes out every week. I've got, you know, one or two of my own video clips that come out from that. I do shows with other people and, and especially people who do a lot of shows. So I've got. This episode of the Manufacturing Come Up is sponsored by Elite Automation. Elite Automation is a systems integrator specializing in robotic weld cell applications and especially the design and manufacturing of the weld fixture. If you have any robotic weld cell needs, you can reach us at RFQ at EliteAutomationUSA.com. I've got a good friend, Sam Gupta um, from Elevate IQ. I will actually be live with him uh, shortly after we, we get off, right? He does... <laughs> he, he does a, a couple of shows every week. And last year he put out like, I don't know, like 400 podcasts. Uh, mm-hmm. he, like, like he went from zero. He's got like no content marketing to like 120%. And he spent like an entire year doing it. And he was putting out sometimes like two podcasts a day. Cause he's talking to all these people and he's mm-hmm. taping all these great conversations and, and he made the pullback. And I don't know if he's going to pull back from, from two live shows and multiple podcasts. I think he was, yeah, I think he was putting out five podcasts a week uh, last Ooh, year. A week. Yeah. Wow. Basically, yeah. He, he did 300 or something like that. Wow. He started after I did and, and surpassed the one, two, three and probably 400 mark before we even get close to a hundred. Uh, but I, I, th- I think it's all kind of balance, right? 
Yeah. And, and at some point, it's good to have a backlog of content. It's good to have people can, continuing to be out there to, to have those conversations. But but it but it is the balance, right? Like, and, and yeah. sometimes we start a new project, right? Like it could even be a project. And maybe you go a little overboard on the project and you're like, hey, I've been ignoring these five other things that I was kind of sort of sure. supposed to be doing because this robotic application is super awesome and, and I want to go do this application or I, I need to get, you know, four days of just intense information to go figure out this program that I told someone maybe I already knew how to do, but now I'm going to go consume all internet, all content on the internet so that I can be semi-competent uh, when I go have a, a face-to-face conversation with this client, right? So <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's all balance. And in manufacturing, there is certainly the need and opportunity to put out more content, right? Like there are there are half a dozen or 10 really good shows or maybe closer to 20 really good shows at this point. But there is so much market and so much need. You know, we yeah. most people look from the outside and we, we are not a super sexy industry, right? right. Like yeah. you're wearing steel toes and a safety vest at a minimum. Maybe you're going and you're wearing, you know, the, the hard hat and, you know, company uniform uh, when, when you show up on site. It is not what people think that our industry is or that that is probably best case scenario what yeah. people think of our industry it's not the cool robotic applications. It's not the, the data visualization. It's not, hey, how can I connect and, and have a reasonable conversation with the production sure. manager and the engineering manager and the CFO and, and visualize that data in a way that everyone makes sense, that makes sense to everyone. Mm-hmm. But like those are things that people generally don't think about. So there, there's absolutely the, the need and opportunity to continue to make and put more content out there. And that's why I'm always so happy to see someone else is is doing shows and is doing all of these other things because Mm -hmm. it's a very underserved market. Yeah. My, you know, my thought on the, on this is, is like, I guess I'm like the most concerned about like LinkedIn Mm -hmm. and cause like YouTube, I don't mind just dumping stuff. Right. Cause it has a good Mm -hmm. searchability to it. And like LinkedIn doesn't really have good searchability. So like, People are not going to go on YouTube and search like how to get a job at this or how to whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, So like with that being said, like as content comes out on LinkedIn, it it comes, it's alive for a period of time and then it dies. Right. Whereas YouTube, like the content will live on forever, you know, until the market's like completely saturated, which will probably be like another 20 more years. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm not even sure we'll get to 20 more years, but no, I would say that if you're creating content, it lives, it needs to live somewhere that is not a a LinkedIn. Uh, And that's kind of for, for anyone doing content uh, across the board, right? Like if it's yours, it should go live somewhere, somewhere that, that is searchable, be it, be it, Uh you know, a website or your podcast website or your podcast Mm. website and YouTube. There, there are lots of opportunities. Yeah. If you're just dumping a whole bunch of stuff on LinkedIn, you're going to get three or four days worth of traffic, and then that's going to be it. Yeah. Do you, you guys are, are putting content on your website, right? Uh, yes. So so we, we have a website, manufacturinghub.live. Uh, yep. We aren't uploading the videos directly to there. Okay. We are linking all of that to the Solus PLC YouTube channel, which is where we're streaming our, okay. our live videos. Okay. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> We're, we're nearly 90 episodes in, uh, so, so we, we don't have 100 or 200 gigabytes worth of back-end storage yeah. of, the, uh, of the website in order to go kind of populate all of that. So uh, yeah. it lives on YouTube. I've got like one or two copies. We've got one or two copies that, that live on Google Cloud and all of those other things. So, so we have all of it, and our goal is to go you know, push it out 
get it out in front of as many people. And then sure. I don't know. I don't know how good we are at posting kind of live transcripts of the live shows in order to, to keep those out. But th that is that that is kind of uh, where we are at. And if you're building content, again, especially video content, find a place to put it so that people can can search it from yep. the rest of the Internet. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think also too, like we'll wrap up here because we've been on here for a minute. <laughs> I think that's a big uh, leverage for career seekers to to post content, not just consume. Be on LinkedIn, right? I don't know where you're watching this at right now, but be on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. and uh, and also post to LinkedIn. Let people see you. Like mm -hmm. even if you're a college student, like playing around with the robot, like let somebody know that you're out here playing around mm -hmm. with the robot. One of those hiring managers might see what you're doing. Yep. Especially if you have any educational things to say or any intelligent things to say, mm -hmm. that, that'll get noticed. I, I, absolutely. If, if you are not posting, like we see lots of kind of ebbs and flow in content and the type of content that, that people are, are putting out, you know, find some way to be unique, have have some sort of voice. Um, yeah, find some way to be unique, have some sort of voice, even if you're, you know, reposting internet interesting articles or pictures or other things that, that are not yours, but you know, you've got an interesting take on, you know, the, the latest manufacturing news or trends, or mm -hmm. you're part of a club that's doing something in robotics or, or mechatronics yeah. or any of those things, finding ways to differentiate yourself and, and add value to, to people's uh, doom scroll on, uh, on LinkedIn will get you noticed. And if nothing else, they'll set you apart from people who are making those hiring and other decisions from, from other people who have a resume and they've, they've never interacted with them online. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any uh, final valuable points to add back to the community? I, I would say that, that the community is great and that the community continues to grow. Uh, if you are, again, if you are not already find a way to become part of a community, uh, whether it's through LinkedIn, whether it's through ISA, whether it's through a local group or your college group or kind of any of those things, building those community and, and making those connections are super important. And then as you're looking to go from kind of one part of your career to the next, say yes to things that make you feel uncomfortable. It will help you get to the next level or, or if nothing else, it's going to help you learn if that's the sort of thing that you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dave, where can everybody find you at? You guys can uh, can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, th that is where I, I connect and talk uh, to most people. Uh, beyond that, you guys can can find me online in a couple of places. Uh, the major place I post and hang out is my website, dave-griffith.com. And then beyond that, you can find us on manufacturinghub.live, which has got hundreds and and may, uh, we're not quite to a thousand but we've got we got hundreds of videos and podcasts and all of these things that, that we have posted uh from our, our weekly events and if you guys are on linkedin uh catch vlad and i live every wednesday afternoon around four awesome guys go check him out he's a big influencer in our industry and uh he's going to continue making an impact oh thank you very kind words no problem catch you later